which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God and his God and father and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy word and we pray that the blessings that you have promised to those who would read and those who would hear the words of this book would be applied to us today. Father, bless us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, illumine us, open up our minds and our hearts to all of the possibilities of the reality that you show us in your word. Uh, strengthen me today that I might articulate this clearly and that we would all be delivered from error in the midst of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, it, it doesn't seem like you hear the name Nostradamus much anymore, but I seem to remember him being incredibly popular in the 80s and the 90s. Before the turn of the century, uh, it seems like there were a number of TV specials and documentaries and books published about him and his so-called prophecies. And some of you younger people may not have even heard that name. I don't know. I don't even know if my own kids have, have ever heard that name. Nostradamus was a French astrologer and a mystic who lived in the 1500s. And he wrote these odd little verses. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of these odd little verses that aren't connected to each other, but have been applied to major world events over the last 500 years as if he actually foretold them, as if he wrote this thing down and then, and then it came true. His, his readers and his supporters have claimed that Nostradamus predicted the Great Fire of London, the French Revolution, Napoleon, Hitler, both world wars, uh, Hiroshima, as, as well as even more recent events like the death of Princess Diana and uh, September 11th. But if you follow up on any one of these alleged prophecies, you find that this, this thing that Nostradamus wrote, this verse from him it, that's applied to a modern day event is, is odd and vague, and it's hardly a clear prediction of anything. For example, the verse that gets quoted as a prophecy of the assassination of Pre President Kennedy is this. This is, this is the prediction of the assassination of Kennedy. The great man will be struck down in the day by a thunderbolt, an evil deed foretold by the bearer of a petition. See, see, that's, 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 he predicted it, right? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. See, Kennedy had received lots of death threats and he was shot in the daytime. So, so that's right. So 
Nostradamus predicted it. See? Well, no, I don't see because um, I, I suppose that the way to become a popular prophet is to write hundreds and hundreds of ambiguous, weird statements without ever dating anything. Nostradamus never dated anything. Do that, right? Write hundreds and hundreds of weird, esoteric things, and sooner or later you might say something that kind of sort of matches up to something that actually happens in history. Well, of course, uh, Nostradamus is no more reliable a prophet than a magic eight ball or a fortune cookie or a horoscope. And they all have this in common. Horoscopes and Nostradamus and fortune cookies make general undefined statements which you have to assign some meaning to in order for them to make any sense. And sadly, for about the last 150 years, Christians have treated the book of Revelation like a magic eight ball. They've treated it like a fortune cookie or like a horoscope or like Nostradamus. It's presumed by many Christians that this, this book of Revelation is an assemblage of weird, incomprehensible statements that really can't be understood, so you have to import some meaning into them. It's been treated as if the symbol of this, the symbolism of this book is so broad and general that just about anything can fit into it, as if the book of Revelation is an island in the scriptures disconnected from everything else and as if the rest of the Bible doesn't teach us how to read it. So uh, many of you are familiar with Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth. And in the 1970s and 1980s, Hal Lindsey told us that Revelation is obviously about the Cold War. Wormwood is obviously a nuclear weapon. Demon locusts are helicopters. Gog and Magog is all about Russia and the nation state of Israel. And of course, yeah, but then you read it now and a lot of it becomes dated. So was it that or wasn't it? Uh, a century before Hal Lindsey, in the later half of the 1800s, before there were helicopters, before there were nuclear weapons, a preacher named J.L. Martin, a dispensationalist preacher named uh, J.L. Martin, looked at Revelation 9 and compared it to the battlefields of his day. He says, this describes modern warfare. Revelation 9 describes riders on horses whose heads are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire, smoke, and brimstone. And Martin said, yes, this is a, this is a reference to uh, the contemporary mode of fighting on horseback. Uh, where, where uh, riders lean forward and they fire guns and it appears at a distance as if, as if the horse has a, has a mane and the rider is the mane and, and the guns that he's firing are, are um, the, the fire-breathing lion. And, um, and then we laugh at that and we say, of course not, because those are obviously missile launchers. That's, that's what that is. You see, both, of, both Hal Lindsey and Martin make the same critical error in reading the book of Revelation as if it's a toy box of symbols, as if it's just this great jumble of pictures that you can make fit whatever news is going on in your world today. And, and you can manipulate it to, to fit whatever fears Christians currently have. What are you anxious about? Well, I can find something in the book of Revelation to make you more anxious. Are you, are you worried about the UN? Well, I got this stuff about the, uh, the, you know, the Antichrist for you. Are, you. are you worried about somebody stealing your credit card number, your social security number? Well, well I've got this stuff about uh, the mark of the beast. It's, it's treated as if um, it's this great 
a toy box of symbols that we can just pull out and apply to whatever we're afraid of. Um, is this why the Holy Spirit gave us the book of Revelation? Is this why Jesus spoke these words so that the church could play this continual game of connect the dots from pictures and symbols we don't understand to all of our anxieties about the future, that whatever we're anxious for, we connect it to something here? Or does that miss the point entirely? Now, I think you know what I'm going to say. That does miss the point entirely. So what is it about? Can we really understand this book and grow from reading it? And those are the questions that I'd like to pursue over the next several weeks. When I ask y'all, and I've, I've asked several people uh, from time to time, what do you want to study? What do you want to read? What do you want to work through together? Over and over and over, I hear Revelation. Folks want to study uh, the book of Revelation. And, and I keep putting it off because it has such a large scope. It would be very easy for me to get stuck in it and stay for a very long time. And I feel this urgency that we have so much in the scriptures to study together and so much to get to. But here we are at the beginning of the season of Advent, where so many of the themes of the first chapters of Revelation fit the theme of the, of the season. So this is appropriate. And, and I'll promise, I'll do my best not to get stuck, not to get bogged down, but, but to keep moving. And we may take a break after several weeks and we, we, will, we will come back to it. But my goal is to eventually gradually work our way through the whole book. And this is a good thing. It's actually a really good thing. As I read, there's a promise uh, in verse three of chapter one. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Blessed are you who hear it. Blessed are you who who read it, um, there's a blessing to studying this book. So, so I want that blessing. Whatever that, whatever that blessing is to us, we, we definitely want it. And so we're going, to, uh, we're, we're going to study it together. So if Revelation is not like a list of Nostradamus sayings, if it's not this you know, a, a assembly of fortune cookie quotes, if it isn't what Lindsay and Jay and Darby and C.I. Schofield have made it out to be, more on them later, but I also will work really hard. I don't want to tilt at, you know, um, dispensationalist boogeymen throughout the whole book of Revelation. Though they present such uh, um, delicious targets, they really, it's, it's, so, it's so easy. We'll, we'll try uh, really not to do that. Um, if it's not what if it's not that, then, then what is it? Well, I want to give you a, a broad overview today and look at it from five angles. Revelation is a symbolic book. Revelation is an intertextual book, it is a practical book, it is a liturgical book, it is a Christological book. And we'll look at each of those very, very briefly. It is symbolic, it is intertextual, it is practical, it is liturgical, it is Christological. First of all, Revelation is a symbolic book. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Um, he signified this book. That means he spoke this book in signs using the language of symbols. Uh, we see God the Father gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to the angels. The angels gave it to John. John gave it to the seven churches. And what is communicated down this chain is symbols. If, if it were communicated in French, you'd have to learn French to understand it. If it were communicated in Russian, 
you would have to learn Russian to read it. If it were communicated in Klingon, you'd have to learn Klingon, but it's not. It's communicated in signs. It's written in the language of symbolism, the same language of symbolism you've learned throughout the whole Bible. And because you know Genesis, you know how to read Revelation. You see, you read Genesis and there you have it. You know everything about men, women, children, light and darkness, water and land, sky and clouds, mountains and gardens, sheep and serpents, gold and precious gems, bread and wine, trees and thorns, angels and flaming swords. You have all of this world of of symbolism down because you know the symbolic language of Genesis. The Bible is front-loaded with symbolism. It teaches us how to read the rest of the Bible. And the symbolism gets kneaded into it, gets worked into the rest of the scriptures. So you have that, you have Revelation, you've studied your way through Exodus and Leviticus. So you know the priestly imagery, you know about the tabernacle and the order of the sacrifices, you know all the feast days. Um, You've read the histories and you've read the prophets. So you've got Daniel and you've got Ezekiel and all of their imagery. You have all of this. And so once you get to Revelation, you see that all of the symbols and all of the pictures and all of the scenes are things that you've seen before, now put together in this new way to show how all of it points to Jesus and his work on behalf of his bride. It, it's, it's collecting and it's, it's bringing all this together in order to, com- to, to communicate this message of correction and encouragement and hope to, this, the, to the first century church. Now, I'm not saying anything controversial, or new by saying that Revelation is a symbolic book. Everybody agrees with that. No one disagrees with that. What I want to emphasize is that we don't interpret those symbols by commandeering any convenient thing that we have at hand. We don't force meaning upon it as if this were a fortune cookie or a Nostradamus quote. Neither do we read the Bible, I'm sorry, neither do we read the book of Revelation as if it were a shrink-wrapped appendix that's sealed off from the rest of the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. The New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches us how to read the New Testament. The Bible gives us a system of interpretation that we'll use to understand Revelation and which in the process of doing that will be better uh, suited and better able to interpret the whole Bible. It's, it's, uh, it's cyclical. We, we go to Revelation, then we find new things and we see this thing put together this way and then we, then we go back and we now can read uh, the other things with this, with this new light and with this new revelation. And that segues neatly to the second point. So Revelation is a symbolic book. Nobody's gonna argue with that. Secondly, Revelation is an intertextual book. Revelation is connected to the whole Bible. It's a commentary on the whole Bible. It summarizes the scriptures and sheds light on everything that comes before it. One scholar counts 348 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation, and that seems kind of low. 348 is very conservative. Uh, But if he's right, on average, that means for every chapter of Revelation, there are at least 16 significant connections to phrases, events, and people from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. Uh, The primary audience of Revelation knew the Hebrew scriptures. And so when they hear the words of Jesus here, they're not thinking of rocket launchers and Mikhail Gorbachev. That's not what they're thinking of. They think in terms of things that they already know from 
the rest of the Bible. And it pleases God to teach us this way. The Holy Spirit loves to teach us in this way that sends us uh, on, a, on a journey to think about, okay, what, what does that mean? Let's work through this and let's think. You can say more in a line of poetry. You can say more in a line of a song than you can say in pages and pages and pages of prose. <laughs> And that's what, the, that's what this language of symbolism does. It's packed with meaning and with uh, relevance and with uh, instruction. So, so here's an example of how intertextual uh, revelation is and, and how uh, this language of symbolism speaks. Four times in Revelation, John sees the saints sealed with God's name on their foreheads, right? So we got that four times the saints are sealed with God's name on their foreheads. In chapter 13, John sees the worshipers of the beast with the name of the beast on their right hands and on their foreheads. They're marked with the name of the beast. Now, did first century Christians sitting in church, listening to their pastor read this, did they think, oh yeah, that's barcodes. Oh, oh I, yeah, that's, um, that's a social security number. Uh, that's a tattoo. That's a, that's a hand stamp at Chuck E. Cheese. You ever feel weird when somebody stamps your hand and you think, oh, is that the mark of the beast? I, that's a little thought. I was just raised thinking that way. I was raised. So they didn't think of those things, right? No, what would they think of? What would they think of when they heard this? Well, what does the Bible say about foreheads? The Bible talks about foreheads a lot. Maybe they think about the curse on Adam, how by the sweat of his brow, he would work the land. The curse lands squarely on Adam's forehead, the mark that then comes on Cain after being spared judgment, after killing his brother, Cain is exiled, but he has a mark put on him that is a protection against further judgment. The priest gets a mark on his forehead with a gold plate that says holiness to the Lord. And he better have that helmet. He better have that plate on his forehead if he goes into the Holy of Holies. King Uzziah tried to go into the Holy of Holies. He's a king. He doesn't belong in the, in the temple to begin with. He doesn't belong in the Holy of Holies. But King Uzziah arrogantly, proudly walks into the Holy of Holies and he doesn't have the helmet of salvation on his head. He doesn't have holiness to the Lord on his forehead. And so God touches his forehead with leprosy because he doesn't, he doesn't have any business going in there. Um, so we have been given a helmet of salvation like the priest had. We have holiness to the Lord covering our forehead so that we can go into God's presence without fear of judgment. In Deuteronomy chapter six, we're commanded to bind God's law where? As a sign on our hand and as frontlets between our eyes. You get God's law stamped on your forehead. We baptize our children. We put the name of Jesus on their heads. So in the fall, the curse lands on our foreheads, but the saints, the redeemed, are marked on their foreheads with the name of God as their protection and their identity and as their security. Now the servants of the beast have his mark of ownership on them. You see, everybody belongs to somebody. Everybody is marked. You either belong to God or you belong to the beast. You're marked, you're identifiable by the master whom you serve. Okay, so that's a starting point. To, um, that's not everything. That's not everything that's there. But that's a starting point to begin to understand what is this thing? What is the mark of the beast? And we'll go into greater detail when we get there. But these things don't sprout out of nowhere. I was reading uh, through uh, this morning and in um, the, letter to, uh, uh, the letter to Pergamos, um, 
God gives this promise. He says, to the one who overcomes, I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. A white stone with a name on it. And that's something that commentators might say, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And, and certainly on first reading, you might think, wow, I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. But, but we want to train ourselves to think, where else in the scriptures have you seen stones with names written on them? Well, the high priest's breastplate, right, has 12 stones. And on every stone is a name of one of the tribes of Israel. So that when the high priest goes into the most holy place to stand before God and make intercession on behalf of the people, he goes wearing the names of all of the tribes of Israel over his heart. He goes with the names of Israel on his chest, representing all of Israel before the throne of God when he makes prayers and intercessions. Um, so uh, Jesus promises, I'm going to give you a stone with a name on it. You've got a name on a stone. So just reflect on that just a minute. What does that mean? Does our high priest go before his father with his uh, uh, breastplate, with our names inscribed on it, with stones, precious jewels? Does he take our names in the same way before the throne of his father? Just think, and that's, that's how we want to be trained to think about uh, it, it's, not just, it's not just crazy, wild speculation. We're not just making things up. We're understanding that the Bible has taught us to think this way, that, that we're, we're given this language of symbol, and now we apply it, and we think, where have we seen this before, and how does it, how does it apply? Well, uh, you see, again, these things don't sprout out of nowhere. They come from somewhere, and we've already learned how to read them if we've read the Bible. See, Revelation is a revelation, right? <laughs> revelation isn't an effort by Jesus to obscure things or make them murky and impenetrable and indecipherable. Revelation is a revealing. It is an unveiling. Jesus isn't in this book dumping out this jigsaw puzzle that, that's missing some pieces, pieces you can only find on CNN and the Weekly World News and the National Enquirer. He's not, he's not giving us that. It is a revelation, but it is a revelation of people who know the Bible. False prophets and false teachers get so much traction because people don't know the Bible. And so they, they point to these things and they make up these, these other uh, interpretations that have nothing to do with anything else in the scripture. So, it's a symbolic book. It is an intertextual book, which requires you to connect it to the rest of the scriptures. But let's put another brick on top of that. Revelation is a practical book. And by that, it, it, I mean, it was written to a specific people in a specific place, in a specific time with encouragement for their situation. Uh, it, it, was, it was written in such a way that those people in a time and place uh, could benefit from it. If it were written to be interpreted the way that most end times teachers read it today, it would have been of no real value to the audience that it was initially communicated to. It would have been the strange, esoteric, comfortless book written to a persecuted and struggling church, which might have considered it so odd that they might not have kept it. Why, why did they copy it down? Why did they, why did they read it? Why did they preserve it? Um, because it was written to them and it was valuable to them in their day. We always tend to read these things as if we're the primary audience. By that I mean, we think this was written directly from heaven to us primarily, as if it was not written to anybody else. 
there's this strange narcissism that sets in to different generations of Christians who believe that we're so important, our generation is so critical that it's impossible for us to be living at any other time than the climax of history. Obviously, we are living at the climax of history. Obviously, we are the chosen special people to see all kinds of wonderful things take place that nobody's ever seen before. So if this is the climax of history, then it must be written to us because we are obviously the most important generation. But that's... um, not at all correct. These things were written first to specific Christians in a specific geographical region in a specific time in history. In chapter 1, verse 1, he uh, refers to things that must shortly take place. And in verse 4, John writes to the seven churches which are in Asia. It was written to specific churches first. Now, Now, because these are the words of Jesus, it's It's always relevant to every church in every age. Romans was written to a specific congregation, but churches and Christians for 2,000 years have found it immensely practical and valuable. It is, when I read Romans out loud, I say, this is God's word for you. This is is what God wants you to know. Other Bible books were written to specific audiences, and they've been preserved for our learning. But we receive their message in the context of their original setting and audience. So when we read Jonah, we read it in the context of his time and place and what he was doing. When we read the law given on Mount Sinai, we can't divorce it from the context, the historical context of when God communicates that. So when Jesus says, I am coming quickly, I'm coming shortly, we, we don't run to the window and look outside. We, no, stop and wait. Who's he saying that to? Who's, who's he talking about? When he thinks, uh, when, when, I'm sorry, when he's talking about things that must shortly take place or things that are happening quickly, which he does repeatedly, when he says the time is near, near from what point in time? Uh, surely if he says quickly, he didn't mean 2,000 years, right? If he says, I'm doing this shortly, if I go to the store and I say I'll be back shortly, and I don't come back for two millennia, uh, you would think I was stretching the definition of shortly, right? Uh, so, so his communication to uh, this specific people and, and his communication of, of quickly and shortly and the time is near is all within this, all within this context. And, and of course, the near event in the rest of the New Testament, the coming event is the destruction of Jerusalem. John read um, part of Matthew chapter 24 this morning and... Um, and I want to go, go back. We'll go back to Matthew 23. Um, actually, the, this, is the, this is the near event that um, all, of the, all of the New Testament is, is speaking about. Matthew chapter 23, beginning verse 24. Um, well, there's woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, let, me, let me fast forward it a little bit. All these woes to scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says in verse 31, Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All of these woes and all of the punishment, all of the judgment for rejecting the Messiah and rejecting the prophets and all of the woes and judgment for unbelief are coming upon this generation. Of course, uh, John read verse 34 of, of chapter 24 this morning. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He repeats it in Luke chapter 21. This theme is carried throughout the epistles as well. The day of the Lord is approaching. It is near. And so from the perspective of these Christians at this time, the judgment is coming. It's important also to note that this letter, uh, Revelation, um, this, this book is not written to the people in Jerusalem. They've already been warned by Jesus in person. This is written to the churches in Asia, which becomes the hub. This becomes the center of the church after Jerusalem is destroyed. <coughs> in, in the first centuries of the church, all the great councils happen in Asia Minor, right? Nicaea, Ephesus, Constantinople, Chalcedon, all of those are in, are in just a, a few miles of Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia. All the co- councils happen in Asia Minor. A, a, Minor. And, and the message to these second generation churches is this, you pay attention to what's happening in Jerusalem. I told them I was coming in judgment. I warned them 40 years ago. And now I'm coming, and this can happen to you too. As you watch those things unfold down in Jerusalem, I want you to get heaven's perspective on all of this. I want you to know what I say about this. Jesus says, I want you to see me vindicated as every word I said comes true down there in Jerusalem, as their time for judgment has ripened. I want you to see my victory over my enemies in all of this, and I want you to be strengthened and established in your identity as the new covenant temple. It's this reading of Revelation that has historically made this book a great comfort to the persecuted church. They didn't read it and they didn't receive it as this esoteric fuzziness. They read it as an epic vision of a conquering Christ who raises his bride up out of persecution and out of martyrdom and crowns her with glory. And they see in Revelation that that what the church does with God in worship changes the whole world. That makes it an immensely practical uh, book for the primary audience. And to my next point, um, that that work that the church does in worship uh, segues into the next point, that Revelation is a liturgical book. Revelation is not a collection of, of disconnected prophetic sayings. Essentially, what we get in Revelation from start to finish is a record of a heavenly worship service. The book is arranged around the same liturgical order that we use every Lord's Day. The liturgical order that God gave Israel in her sacrifices that you see every time there's a, a covenant established or a covenant renewed. There's, a, there's in Revelation, there's a call to worship. There's a confession of sin. The word is open and read. There's a great communion feast. And then there's a blessing and a sending out. Now, we'll, we'll spend next week looking at this theme in greater detail, but just a few clues to this uh, right now. This book, in, in, uh, uh, in the very first verses, this blessing is on he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy. 
Uh, this book is written to be read aloud and to be heard in the context of worship. It's, it's written to be heard in, ch in church. It's, it's fine to read on your own, you, you should, but it is written to be read aloud and to be heard in worship. And you have to wonder if it were primarily studied in the context of the church, in the context of worship and community, how much uh, nonsense would, be, would, would we be preserved from if that were the primary context? But um, I, I'll just admit, I'm scared. I'm really terrified to go through this and think of all the uh, work that it is to go, to go through this. It is intimidating to go through uh, as, a, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a, and to lead a congregation through this. It is, it is intimidating, but, um, but how much blessing are we depriving ourselves of from not doing that? Because it is written to be used exactly like we're using it today, to read it aloud and to hear it read aloud. So that's one indication that this is... Um, that, that this is a liturgical book. Also, uh, in verse 10, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. When he receives this message and this call to worship, he's, it's, it's on the Lord's Day. So if he's in a place with other Christians on the Isle of Patmos, they're in worship together. If his exile is solitary, then, then he's in prayer. But it's in the, in the context of Lord's Day worship that revelation comes to him, and he's invited up to the heavenlies. And so in chapter 4, he looks, and behold, a door standing open to heaven, and he hears a voice like a trumpet speaking with him, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And then heaven opens up to a worship service. He, he joins the worship service already in progress. And he uh, sees the uh, four living creatures singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders singing, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So John is given this opportunity to look into the throne room of God and watches in the context of this great liturgy, this, this drama of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. John sees from heaven's perspective what happens in heaven and earth when the church wrestles with God in worship. Well, there's so much there to explore, but I'll save it for next week and move on to the final point, which is that this worship in the book of Revelation all has a focus and this worship is all directed on the Lord Jesus. So Revelation is a Christological book. See, all the symbols point to Jesus and all the synthesis of all the Bible texts, this intertextuality all points us to Jesus. And what's helpfully practically communicated to the Asian churches is the person of Jesus. And what we see through the heavenly liturgy is the worship of Jesus and the Lordship and the victory of the King of Kings over everything that exists. I used to read this book with my chicken little glasses on, and I would come away from it very troubled and very disturbed. I was, I was focused more on my science fiction perspective of what life would be like under a totalitarian antichrist, how dreadful and how scary the powers of darkness are, completely missing the whole point. Which, which is explained in the very first words of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse four, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. If you walk away from this book feeling despair 
there, you're reading it wrong. This is about Jesus pouring himself out in love for his bride and showing his love and defense for his bride, his passionate love for her. Uh, The churches to whom Jesus speaks are living in this environment where it's assumed that Caesar is king of kings and Lord of lords. Caesar has the power of life and death at his fingertips. Caesar rules all dimensions of life. For Rome, it didn't matter what gods you worshiped in your heart. It didn't matter who you worshiped in your private life, so long as you acknowledge the perfect sovereignty of Caesar over your public life. Everything you have and everything you are is subject to the state and Caesar will have no rivals. So first and second century Christians soon fall under persecution, not because they worship Jesus, no, but because they refuse to also worship Caesar. They would not acknowledge the deity of Caesar. So here comes John bringing this message from Jesus, revealing Jesus to be everything that Caesar can only claim to be and everything that Caesar most definitely is not. So in verse seven, he says, behold, he's coming with clouds. Um, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We'll cover this in more detail uh, when we actually get to exegesis verse by verse, but um, this, this coming with clouds always reverts to God's glory cloud in, uh, in Isaiah 19. Um, Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. You see, when God comes in judgment, he comes with his cloud. He comes with his glory cloud, his clouds of angels. And that's what he's promising to do here. He's coming against Jerusalem with his clouds of avenging angels. And he's coming in such a way that everybody's gonna see this is his judgment for rejecting him, especially those who crucify him. And uh, then comes that proclamation that only Jesus can make. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and who, uh, and who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. This is a highly charged, extremely dangerous political statement. If you're going to say this, that this is who Jesus is, the Almighty, then you're going to have to be 1,000% positive that this Jesus is who he says he is, because as far as Rome is concerned, this is treason to say this. To say this out loud in Rome, Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To say this out loud in Rome is socially and politically and economically self-destructive. If you say this out loud, your life is over. Your normal life as a Roman citizen is over. This revelation of Jesus confirms, however, to these churches and these Christians in this context that they are on the right side of history, that they are behind the true king of the cosmos, that Jesus is king and Caesar isn't. Who says the gospel isn't political? What do you mean with your separation of church and state that, that says that the church can have no influence over society? The book of Revelation doesn't know anything about a Jesus who is uninvolved in world affairs. A quiet, passive, internal Christianity is exactly what the kingdoms of this world want. 
totalitarian status regimes are incredibly compatible with heart religion, with me and Jesus Christianity. Totalitarian regimes have no complaints against you and Jesus Christianity. It's when the church begins to preach and teach and live as if Jesus is not only the future king, but the present and reigning king, that's when things start to heat up. And this book backs these Christians with a Jesus who is mighty, who is regal, who is victorious, who is a conqueror, not just a conqueror of your head and your heart, but a conqueror of everything. And the constant report from this Christological book is this, that this king is coming, which makes this the perfect book to begin studying on the first Sunday of Advent. This season is when we reflect on the promises of Jesus to draw near to us. He drew near to us as a man. He came in judgment. He comes on the day of the Lord, on the Lord's day. He comes every Lord's day to draw near to us. He's coming again. We call on him to come to us, to sort things out, to set things right, to visit and bless and feed us and equip us. And this book is shot through with promises to come. When he speaks to the churches, everyone, he says, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming in a, uh, to Ephesus. He says, I'm coming to you quickly. I'm going to remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. To uh, Pergamos, he says, repent or else I'll come to you quickly. To Thyatira, he says, hold fast what you have until I come. To Sardis, he says, I will come upon you as a thief. Over and over, he's saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to come. If you do not repent, I'm going to do to you what I'm doing to Jerusalem. Watch, that's an object lesson for you, what's going on down in Jerusalem. I'm going to do that. That's what will happen to you if you turn away from me and you start following idols. And if I can do that to Jerusalem, what do you think I'll do to Laodicea? If I can do that to Jerusalem, what do you think I'll do to Raleigh or Cary or Durham? What do you think I'll do? These will be our guiding principles that we work through um, with, with this book. Uh, and especially as I make our, we make our way through Advent, that we'll see that our King indeed is near, that He is and He comes to us, that, that He will come in righteous judgment against our idolatrous society. He will come against disobedient churches. He will come against indifferent families. And He could come in judgment at any moment. He can shake things up and turn things upside down in a minute. Do not think that because He's not visibly active uh, in a way that we can see it is, doesn't mean, don't think that that means he's fine with the way things are. He's patient. He gives room for repentance. But one day the trumpet sounds and he comes with his clouds of avenging angels and nothing is ever the same again, which means you need to take this king seriously. Don't put off repentance and reformation. Fear him not the state, not your family, not the society of belief all around you. Cultivate a holy, reverent awe and fear for this King Jesus. You see, we always get that backwards, right? We fear everything else but him. We fear everybody else but him. We think, what will they think? What will they do? What will they say? And you don't give a passing thought to what God thinks or does or says. This is how Christian societies and this is how Christian institutions crumble and go soft and compromise. They begin to fear the progressive mafia. They begin to fear the condescending intellectual elite. They begin to fear the outrage mob who are never satisfied, who are never placated. They fear them more than they fear God. They would rather displease God than to displease the mob. They would rather displease God than displease a horde of unbelievers who 
uh, don't care about you. They don't love you. And what you end up doing is disintegrating and you end up on the trash heap of history when you worry about uh, pleasing men more than pleasing God. So in our study, my prayer is that we will see in Revelation the revealing of an awesome, mighty, powerful, glorious, conquering king, such an earth-shattering image of the authority of our Lord Jesus that I pray that we'll never want to please anybody else but him. Never care what anybody else thinks but him. Never fear anyone else but Jesus, but that all of our allegiance goes to this king who is revealed in this book. All of our allegiance goes to him alone. And that is my prayer as we work through this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, our savior and King Jesus. We pray indeed that we would grow in our awe and worship and fear of you and the way you have revealed yourself through your son and that all other fears and anxieties would diminish in light of that, that we would only care about pleasing you. We would care about pleasing you above all other things. So Father, continue to grow us in this, give us your spirit so that we might have this courage. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.